In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. Hey guys, are you stuck in a rut? Do you have a sin that you seem to be dragging around like a bad piece of luggage and you want to get free from it because you know not only is it hindering you from being your best version, but it could potentially embarrass and cause shame to you and those you love the most. Stay tuned. We're going to unpack how to find freedom and become your best version now. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we salute you. Welcome to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, your guide and host of Spotify's number one podcast for Christian men, guiding you into your best version within that stress bubble of life and beyond. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, as you know, we are always collecting hero stories. We're looking for 365 hero stories every year. A hero story is a story of transformation that you've either seen in your life or for you wives, the man that you love. This is an opportunity for us to celebrate with you. And so when you write in with your hero story, if we use it, we want to send you some swag just to say thank you. So our hero story for the week is number 121, and it comes from Austin through Instagram. And he says, hey, man, Jim, you usually get flooded with messages, but I just want to share my gratitude. He said, I'm 29 years old. I grew up with a horrible, horrible father figure, and I found your podcast. You've become a father fig- from afar, and that which is funny because I have a 29-year-old son. He said, but here's the cool part that I want to share, and this is the hero story. He said, I'm currently going through all of your curriculum. Now, Austin, Thank you for doing that, man. You're going to be a better man, and your wife and your children one day will be better because of it. I hope you're in a community of men building uh, in a small group, working together with men who have locked arms with you. If not, go to our website and join the program. We want to get you plugged in, man. So thanks a lot. Hit us up at info at menandarena.org. We want to send you some swag just to say thanks for being you. Guys, make sure you stay tuned to the end of this podcast when I reveal Man law number 20. You are going to love this. These are found, our man laws are found in my book, Man Laws, 100 Ways to Get Your Man Card Revoked and Rules to Live By. This is a free resource for you that we have on our website. So you can head on over to menandarena.org and grab your copy today. Hey guys, I'm excited today to bring my new friend on, Nick Stumbo. Nick, 
currently serve as the executive director for Pure Desire. Out of, they're based out of Oregon, just up the road from me. He's been serving in pastoral ministry 22 years. He's currently a certified pastoral sex addiction professional. He's been featured on Focus on the Family. He's the co-host of the Pure Desire podcast and author of two books, Safe, Creating a Culture of Grace in a Climate of Shame, and Setting Us Free, which is our topic for today. He lives in Gresham, Oregon. He's been married to his beautiful wife, Michelle, of 23 years. Man, I'm excited to have him on the show today. Nick, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, hey, man, I, I got through, uh, read your book, and in your book, you tell your story. And so these guys aren't reading your book. They're just going to read our faces and our lips right now. Huh. And so why don't you take a moment and just share your journey of uh, ministry and uh, your struggle with some of these uh, 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 sexual issues that you dealt with, and let's just start there. Yeah. All right. I grew up in a great Christian home. My dad was a pastor in central Wyoming. Um, and like most great Christian homes, we never talked about sex other than kind of the classic birds and bees talk and sex is for marriage. And and that was all good. But when I was exposed to pornographic content at a friend's house at about 10 years old, you know, I immediately felt two things. I felt drawn to it. And then I felt a lot of shame about being drawn to it and, and immediately felt like, oh, no, I could never tell my parents about this because they'd be very angry. And so I found in my story, and this is so common, I think, especially for Christians, that sex comes into our life when we're not looking for it, sexual things, and it, it is put into a place where it is both secretive and shameful. And for me, that became the pattern, you know, going into high school, it's the late 90s, so the internet is just becoming a thing, and you could download naked images, and you had to be patient to wait for the phone dial-up modem to load them, but that was part of the, the turn-on and the buzz of, like, it's taking time, what am I going to see um, and then as high speed internet comes and I'm in college now away from home, it was just this binge purge issue, um, where every time I would say, okay, that was the last time God, I'm so sorry. That's, I don't want that in my life. I'll never do it again. Um, and yet without understanding what was driving the behavior or really having any context for what lasting change looked like that pattern of binge purge with pornography was happening every couple of months, sometimes more often, sometimes less often. Um, all the way into my marriage and into ministry for the first 10 years. And so in the environment I grew up in, you know, the, the church did teach me that the way to, to stop sinning was James chapter five, you know, confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. And so I, I jokingly say that I became a serial confessor because whenever the moment was right, like I confessed, I confessed to my high school youth pastor, to the summer camp counselor, to the, the youth conference rally, you know, prayer at the front, to my the RA on my college dorm floor, and eventually to my college dean of students, and then my first senior pastor, my first elder board. And, and I would say my confessions were sincere. It was like, I'm so sorry this is happening. I repent of it. I'm turning from it. Would you pray for me? And that would happen to be like, okay, man, now that I told that person, or now that I confessed in that way, I'll be free. And usually for a time period, you would be, I would be. And then Again, without understanding what was driving it or why I was doing it, after a couple of months, I'd be back in it. And then you'd have double shame because now you'd feel the shame over what you were doing and the shame that the people you'd confessed to before didn't know you were back doing it. Oh, so now that yeah. the secrecy and the shame are just amping up. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that confession for me was to my wife, even before we were married, to just be honest and you know, a speaker at our small Christian college had said, before you get married, you owe it to your future spouse to 
tell them everything. And that made sense to me. So I'm like, Hey babe, you know, I've struggled with pornography and here's kind of my story. And she was very wide eyed and naive and forgiving and hopeful that like, man, marriage will make it better. And, and, and I didn't believe that like marriage would magically fix me. I just thought I would grow up that I would mature in Christ. Like I was in all of these other areas. And I just wouldn't need this behavior anymore. But like I said, for for 10 years, that was a part of our marriage rhythm, that a couple of times a year, I would feel the conviction of like, man, I'm still struggling. She doesn't know. I have to tell her, you know, I'd confess all over again, and I'm so sorry, and this is the last time, and I mean it. And at first, you know, she was pretty understanding and forgiving, but as you might imagine, after 10 years of that, my words that this is the last time, and I'm really sorry, and it's going to change had become pretty meaningless to her. And in 2010, we were really at a fracture point in our marriage that she was starting to use words like separation and going to my parents' house. And like, I was realizing it was, it was destroying my marriage. And I honestly didn't know what to do other than keep trying harder to stop. And that was actually where in, uh, actually at a conference for pastors, we were introduced to pure desire heard Dr. Ted Roberts speak and offer this program to help pastors, really to help anybody who struggled. But, you know, he was at a conference for pastors, so he was appealing to us. And the amazing thing to me looking back, and I, I always tell this part of the story because I think as men, we can relate. I sat in this room where I was on the verge of losing my marriage because of my 15-year issues with pornography, heard about a plan from people who could help me. And the thought process in my mind was not, oh, this is for me, sign me up. The thought process was, this sounds great for men who are struggling more than I am. You know, for people who really have a problem, they need the counseling, they need yeah. the group. I'm I'm pretty well dialed in. And, and what scares me looking back is the level of denial and rationalization in my life that I would continue, to, I think, to binge purge my way right into a divorce because my wife was so tired of it. But thankfully, at that conference for pastors, my wife was sitting right next to me. And where, where I was hearing an appeal for other men, my wife was hearing an answer to 10 years of her prayers. And she was saying, thank you, Lord, that finally somebody knows how to help Nick, because she really believed I was sincere. And I was about, I wanted to change. I, I just didn't have anything else to do other than what I'd always done. So because of her hearing that, we went and started the Pure Desire process. We did a whole year of counseling of being in groups, both for me as the struggler and her for the betrayed spouse. Um, and it was transformational and continues to be as we both have continued to lead groups and be a part of the ministry and and really got by God's grace to take our story and be it make it part of our church's story and something that has helped a lot of other couples. So um, we were in that church for about six more years after my public disclosure and starting groups there. And then that was when I transitioned down uh, to become the executive director here at Pure Desire and, and do ministry of a different kind. So that's a, a quick snapshot of my journey. I mean, obviously there's pieces throughout there we could unpack. So um, that's that's what led us to here, though. So, okay, so you did, you did create some questions in my brain. One question is, uh, you said the betrayed spouse. Clearly that's a betrayal. On what level would you say... Uh, viewing pornography is a betrayal. Would you say it's an adultery? Because I just had a guy ask this like two weeks ago. What is your definition of betrayal? Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, that is such a challenging question. And I think particularly because the one who is struggling and the spouse can have a very different feeling. And oh, so, yes. you know, for 10 years when I'm telling my wife, hey, I, I stumbled into pornography again. I'm really sorry. It was just one night, you know, and, and now I've moved on and I got, you know, I'm not keeping anything, not hiding anything. And to me, it felt like, hey, I'm, I've had this struggle since I'm a teenage guy. It's just images of the mind and things I'm seeing online. But my wife would tell me, and even in those early years, she'd say, Nick, this feels like adultery. And I'd be like, well, it's, it's so different. There's not real people. I would never do that. Um, but what I missed is if my wife is saying to me, Nick, this feels like adultery, right? There, sh there should have been something in my heart that went, I don't ever want to do that to my wife. And if that's how it's like, if she'd come to me and said, Nick, when you borrow my car without asking me, it feels like adultery. Like if she had told me that, I would say, man, I will, I will never borrow your car without asking. That, I don't ever want to make you feel that way. And, and, and yet in this area, I was rationalizing and trying to explain it away. So I, I would say there are differences. You know, when there's a physical affair and there are other people that are a part of that equation, it's, it's more complex, it's more messy. But I think statistically, we have found through a lot of research that the impact on the partner can be equivalent, whether it's pornography, real people. Yes, there's different layers and levels to it, but the betrayal can strike just as deep. And part of that too, if you think about it, for a spouse that's in a marriage, if, if they've hopefully never had their spouse cheat on them with another real person, but their spouse is looking at naked images or watching other people have sex, it, it, they don't have anything to compare to, right? It's like, all I know is this hurts. It makes me feel like I'm not good enough. It makes me feel like you'd prefer to be with someone else rather than me. And I would say that's betrayal. So in a sense, I would define betrayal as anything that, that causes a spouse to feel like we have broken the, the vow of our marriage to make them our one and only and to forsake all others. You know, we vowed to forsake all others. And I didn't make a stipulation say, well, I forsake all physical others, oh, right? Like yeah. my vow yep. was to forsake all others. And I would assume that means in any form. Yep. And so in a sense, there's betrayal there. Now, what is adultery? And we, you know, you can unpack Matthew 5. And I believe Jesus yeah. was calling pornography a form of adultery. But the way I would interpret it, I don't think that means that every time someone has looked at pornography, they're now eligible for divorce because they've committed the kind of adultery that does lead to divorce. So there's nuances there that we could talk about. You know, should you call it adultery or not? I actually learned in our story and in working with a lot of other couples. I don't really care what you call it. I think the important thing is to underscore if your spouse is saying this leads to feelings of betrayal as equivalent to you cheating on me with another person, then it's betrayal and it's a serious issue that has to be dealt with. Man, I sure appreciate you unpacking that. One more thing I want you to unpack that you said. So I've met with two different guys over the last 35 years of ministry that were sex addicts. And I said, well, so tell me what that means, you know? You know, and, and actually, and, and the motive was that was going, hey, how you know how deep am I going here with my own lust, right? And one guy said, oh, I masturbate eight times a day, every day. One guy said seven. So I thought, oh my gosh, oh well, man, holy cow. So, but in your story, you're saying your your uh, pornography issue was a couple times a year, right? In some good years, but I'm sure other times it was more like monthly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. So if a guy's going, well, I'm not eight or you know seven or eight times a day. I'm just, 
you know, a couple times a month, but yeah. you, but you dove headlong into this program and your wife felt betrayed. I'm just, I know how guys, their minds are going, Oh, this yeah. isn't for me. I'm only a hobbyist. Talk to us about, <laughs> about the guy that's going, Oh man, I'm not a porn. I'm not a sex addict. I'm just a hobbyist or whatever yeah, you want well, to call yourself. I mean, a couple of things about that. I mean, obviously definitions of addiction change and we could talk about what I mean when I say addiction because it's not a disease model oh, that would remove yeah. us from responsibility. Um, but I bring up the point of like, how much poison is okay in your life? <laughs> yep. Is, is, yeah. is seven times a day of poison okay? Well, we'd say no. Is once a month poisoning yourself okay? I think we'd say no as well. Yep. But let me let me really answer your question by telling a story from ours because I was very much in like, hey, I don't really I don't have a real problem. That's for guys that are seven times a day. Yeah. For me, it's occasional. Yes. And I'm dealing like last time, you know, I would really convince myself last time was the last time and I meant it. Um, but it never was. Yeah. Uh so in this process, we hear from Dr. Ted Roberts, we're invited to join Pure Desire. I was so skeptical that they offered this first step. They're like, hey, if, if you're trying to figure out if you need help, go talk to this gentleman in our de denomination who was kind of a pastoral counselor type guy, and he'll help you de discern if you should go to Pure Desire. So I went and met with this guy, uh, a friend of mine named Morris, and I spent the better part of our meeting trying to tell him why I didn't need the TED program. That's what I called it, the, the TED program. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need that much help. Yeah. I just need a couple of tools or a couple of tips and I'm, I'm almost free. And he said, okay, Nick, let me ask you three questions. He said, number one, how long has this been a problem? And I'm like, well, since my early teen years. So at that time I was 30, I'm like 15, 16 years at this point. He's like, okay, second question. How many times have you tried to stop? Uh, that's, that's where I kind of laughed. Cause I was like, well, Every time was going to be the last time. So honestly, yeah. I've tried to stop hundreds, if not thousands of times. He's like, okay, third question. Is it causing you or people you love significant amounts of pain? You know, and that's when it got serious. I'm like, yeah, I think if I relapse again, my wife might leave me. He said, okay, let's put those three together. It's been a problem for a long time. You've tried repeatedly to change without success, even though it's causing you or people you love significant pain. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much my life right now in a nutshell. And that's where he, you know, he got real serious and he looked at me and in love, but in truth said, Nick, that's the clinical definition of an addiction. Wow. And I, I remember I, I sat back like he just slapped me across yeah. the face because it felt so, you know, I was a pastor I was preaching the word of God. I was sincere in my faith, sincere in my love for Jesus. I wasn't trying to live a secret double life and hiding all like I, I wanted to be rid of it and ha have someone say you're an addict felt like they were saying you're not a Christian and you don't love Jesus. Yeah, because that's how that's how I basically defined addict. Like an addict is the guy on skid row off on drugs, hating everybody, hating yeah. himself like I'm not that. But to bring it down to it's been a problem for a long time. You've tried repeatedly to change without success, even though the pain level is getting really high. That's an addiction. It's an it's an unwanted compulsive behavior that you don't seem to be able to stop, even though you've tried and it's hurting people. And I think if we use that definition, whether it's once a year or once an hour, we might fall into that category of saying this pattern keeps happening in my life. And how long is it between the pattern happening? Is it a day or is it a month? is less important than does it keep happening? And we realize I don't have the skills needed to change this on my own. Because if I did, and I, and I would say this, you know, if men in the church did 
have a, a, a simple way to change it, we'd see a lot less struggles with pornography. And yet the stats would suggest that a majority of us would raise our hand and say, I have an unresolved battle with pornography in my life. And maybe it's yearly, maybe it's monthly, maybe it's weekly or daily. But if we're saying, I don't seem to be able to stop, then we're starting to use the language of addiction. Um, and again, to me, addiction and adultery, it's like, if you want to call it an addiction, great. If you don't want to call it an addiction, great. Call it a compulsive behavior. But the reality is, if you could face it in a way to say, this isn't changing and I've done everything I know to do, maybe I need someone else to help. Maybe I need an outside voice of experience to guide me down a pathway that I currently don't see. And that to me is more valuable than whether you want to call it an addiction or not. Man, that is so powerful. I really appreciate the clarification. That is just so good. I mean, that that really could be my blog for this podcast right there. The <laughs> yeah. three questions you need to ask. So I'm going to read. I'm going to read a couple statements out of your book, and I'm going to ask you a question. And you've already alluded to those statements. On page 11, you said, "For much of my life, I tried to hide the fact that some things I believed really did not work." I see promise after promise that Jesus made in Scripture. But when I looked at my life, I could not see evidence of his promises coming true. That was a powerful statement when I read it. Let's go down to verse 13. You talk about why you wrote the book. You said, this is a story of how I discovered that Jesus' promise, his promises were actually true. And I thought, okay, okay, so now we're moving somewhere. And then down on page 16, you said, what if the issue that we have let me read that again. You said, what if the issue is that we haven't fully understood how Jesus sets us free? When I read that, I went, okay, I'm all in here. So let's talk about that. So you you are highly involved as the executive director of Pure Desire with a how Jesus heals men of sexual addiction or what do you call it, uncontrollable compulsive behavior, whatever. Yeah. So can you talk to us about the how here and what you've discovered? Yeah. I think a danger or a trap that we can fall into as as Christ followers is thinking we have a belief problem. That if I struggle with anything in my life, it's because I just I just don't believe God strongly enough. And so, you know, I write in the book about John chapter eight that uh, he who knows the son, the son sets free and he whom the son sets free is free indeed. And mm -hmm. two chapters later about, you know, the, that the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And it's like, yes, I believe those things. And then if I'm struggling monthly with pornography, it's like, well, but Jesus said he set me free. Okay. I'm, I just need to believe stronger that he set me free and I am free. And, and then you're still struggling. And so, and it really breaks my heart. The men who will come in a group and be questioning, I wonder if I'm even saved. I wonder if I'm even really a Christian because I keep struggling. And, you know, the Bible says that the old man is dead and, and I'm set free, but I'm not free. So maybe I'm not saved. I'm like, man, there's, there's something where we have to go beyond. This isn't just a belief problem. And it's really where we experience that there's a huge divide between maybe what we know in our head and what we experience in our heart. Now, we know that, that truly speaking, our heart is also in our brain. That's, that's another conversation. Um, but, it, but it's that there's a part of us that's a feeling, experiencing part of our life. And in that part of us, knowing a truth, knowing a verse, believing it really doesn't matter if there's an experience in our life that is whispering to us a lie about our value, worth, and identity. And this is where I find that we really get caught up in unwanted behaviors where our faith doesn't seem to impact it because it's like there's something that is blocking us. 
So I can know the love of God in my life, but if there's a core wound that I feel shame about my pornography use, or maybe an experience from growing up where I felt like I'm, I'm worthless or I'm sinful or I'm wicked or I'm bad, that experience is deeply rooted in a place in my thinking and in my soul that that, that knowledge-based truth of a verse or a good sermon just can't get at. And that's why in the, like the pure desire group experience that I had, you know, I went into it and we started unpacking like past wounds and trauma. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I have a good family. I have good parents. I don't, I don't need any of that garbage. I'm just here because of my porn use. And they're like, well, trust the process because you're going to actually see how this is all connected. And it's like, okay, fine. You know, like I actually remember uh, at one point, Dr. Ted Roberts in counseling told me, he said, Nick, you're going to find that a lot of your porn use is probably being driven by a wound in your life. And it's most likely a father wound. And I'm like, yeah, I think you're wrong, but we'll see. Uh, And so as I start going through the group and I'm unpacking this trauma stuff, I had to come back to Ted and apologize and say, you're right. And it wasn't that my dad was a bad guy. He's a great guy. We have a great friendship. But the truth that I had to realize is that my dad is also a wounded person. My dad is also a sinner. My dad is not perfect. And in places where his imperfections matched up with my neediness to find my value, worth, and identity in our relationship as father to son, which we all naturally do, it created woundedness. Areas where I felt like I wasn't good enough, I didn't measure up, I wasn't lovable. Now, my dad never once said, you don't matter, I don't love you, you're worth it. He never, ever said that. But it's how I interpreted interactions growing up. Um, there's a psychologist named Dr. Gabor Matei who says trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is what happens inside of you. And so there were interactions with my dad, like after high school basketball games where I had done my best. And on the way home, what's my dad doing? He's coaching me up, man, you should have made this pass. You could have got that rebound. If you'd have done this play different. And he's, he's thinking I'm being a helpful, good dad as a 16 year old kid. What am I hearing? You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. I don't know that my dad ever intended that. But what I can tell you is that Satan used it to lodge these deeper lies that say, you don't matter. You're not good enough. You don't, you're not worth it. Well, what, what lies does pornography give me? When I go to pornography or even just fantasy and lust for that matter, pornography says, you're good enough. You matter. You're wanted. You're desirable. You're always the king. You're always in control. So here the lies from my woundedness are being met by this behavior. So now if all I try to do is stop this behavior, don't look at porn, stop lusting, you know, get off your computer, but I don't address these issues of my wounds and and the lies that come from them, how successful am I going to be? And so that's where to take it back to the belief question and, and how we change, I can preach at myself all day that Jesus sets me free. But what I need to do is see where the lies come from, and then with the help of other men in community, go into those places and understand how does God feel about me, and not just in kind of a, you know, quote, a verse kind of way, but experiencing the love of God through other people and seeing where God's love has shown up experientially in my life and making sure that those kind of emotionally driven memories and experiences of God's love begin to be my new memory system um, versus the old lies. So it's, it's almost like, you know, your computer hardware, right? Like in your computer, if you have faulty software, you, you can't just ignore it. Like you need to go and rewrite that code in those actual places so that it functions properly. 
I feel like that's a big part of what's happening in the kind of recovery that Pure Desire and thankfully other ministries are understanding is we have to go into those places of wounds and trauma and invite the presence of Christ to rewrite the faulty code so that we stop believing the lies, stop being driven by the lies, and now are able to experientially live out God's truth that, you know, that we have value and worth and that we are set free. And so I, I believe with my whole heart that Christ sets us free, but it's not just in this magical, you know, pray at the altar for freedom and it's, it's there. It's a process of his love transforming my life and leading me into the kind of lasting freedom that he wants us to have as his sons and as a part of his family. Wow, that's powerful. I, I really appreciate how well you articulate this. Clearly, you're a pastor. So, speak, but speaking of that, so you, you I, I do talk about it probably too much, and I should keep my answers short. No, no, no. I, I'm <laughs> loving this because you're really bringing it down to earth for me. But I was teasing about the pastor thing because my next question is regarding you and me. So, I've we've got between us almost 60 years in full time pastoral ministry. So, when you talk about and uh, you talk about this on page 48, you talk about this this um, gap between what I know and what I do. Do you think when Paul wrote Romans chapter 7, he was talking about that current gap that he was wrestling with? Is that your take on Romans 7? Because when I read it, I read it as, wow, Paul had some kind of issue that was bugging him because he said, that which I don't want to do, I do, and that which I want to do, I don't do. Oh, what a wretched man I am. What's your thought on Romans 7 in the context of this gap that we're talking about? Yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of opinions on Romans 7. I, yeah. I look at it as as Paul just putting into writing what a lot of us have felt. Oh, that's that good. I, I know the right thing to do, but I see places I don't do it. And I, you know, he writes about this throughout the book of Romans, that actually yeah. knowing the law, knowing the right thing to do, there's a part of me that makes me not want to do it because I know what it is. And it's like, yeah. what what is that? And what I feel is it's Paul wrestling with what he says in Galatians 5, uh, like 22 and following that, you know, we've been given a new life, but the old nature is still present. And there is this battle or war between them. And for me, that's what I would call sanctification. Yes. Like that's what I would call our growth as believers from the point we accept Christ until eternity. We are all being sanctified to become more like Christ. And to me, the way I would describe that is we're learning to live out our new nature and see that the, our old nature is dead and not answer its desire or will anymore. And yet in that in-between time, because last time I checked, we're not dead and we're not perfected in eternity yet. So that means somewhere in our life, there's a part of us that is still in process. And when I talk about that gap, I think that's what I'm trying to explore is that a lot of us feel like what I'm, because we all know we have that part of us, right? Like we all know we're not perfect. I, I've never met a man who's like, oh no, I'm perfect, right? Like we all know we're not perfect. And yet, and this is the key, so many of us feel like those places where I'm not perfect, I, I need to hide those. Now, there are socially acceptable places we don't have to, like, oh, I'm a workaholic, or yeah, I battle with anger. That seems safe to say. But if, if I'm not yet perfected in my struggles with lust and pornography, that can be harder to say. And so it feels like, and especially when you're a leader or a pastor, um, like I need to put forward the parts of me that people want to see that people uh, approve of and the parts of me that are a little messy and still in process, I better keep those hidden. And the gap that creates of what people know versus what they don't know is part of what keeps us trapped because of those thoughts that say, man, if, well, if they knew the real me, if they knew what I really struggle with, if they knew what I really did last Monday night when I was stressed out and everyone was in bed, they wouldn't, they wouldn't love me. They wouldn't want me here. They would fire me. So 
Better keep that separate. And now there's this gap that I have to continue to function and act like things are okay, even when they're not. And and to me, that's a, a lot of our growth and moving towards wholeness is shrinking that gap, or at least having places where that gap doesn't have to exist. Now, there's definitely, you know, I'm, I try to be careful to say, if you're a pastor or you're standing on stage speaking, that doesn't mean everybody needs to know everything all the time. I don't think that's appropriate. Agreed. But I would say we all need places where someone knows everything all the time and that there is no gap. And we realize, oh, I'm safe. I'm loved. I'm accepted. You know, problems and struggles and all that gives me then the ability to keep working towards that, that change and transformation God wants to bring in my life. Uh, versus feeling like there's parts of me I just always have to hide. Well, and this is that you, as you were speaking, for those of you who are not watching this on YouTube, Nick did this with his hands. He made a round circular motion with his hands. And I instantly went to page 107 in your book, The Shame Cycle. And it's a circle. So, you know, with this gap, it seems that it would create a shame cycle. Is that accurate? And if so, can you explain the shame cycle? Yeah, it's kind of the the whole idea that we've, I think we've all heard the quote that sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever thought you'd pay. Wow, that's good. Uh, and it's, it's the idea that sin doesn't leave us stagnant. It doesn't just let us stay where we are. It actually will be a cycle towards, you know, the John 10, that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And sin is a cycle leading us towards death unless we really arrest that cycle. And so in the shame cycle, if we're feeling like, boy, there's a part of me that I feel shame about and that I have to hide, then in that hiddenness, I become a little isolated from you. And when I say isolated, I don't mean that I don't hang around. I think some of the most isolated people in the world sit in church every Sunday surrounded by people. So they're, they're physically present, but emotionally and what I would call true intimacy, that knowing and being known, they feel isolated. And the longer you go feeling isolated, the more you, you you do have ways you begin to separate from meaningful relationships and from people that could help. Well, the more separated I am, what am I more likely to do? To choose more sin, which, which leads to more to hide and more shame and more. And, and I'm just going down and down until you think about it. The enemy is moving me away from the people and community of God into isolation until potentially it destroys me. And, and that is a cycle. And, and maybe going back to my struggle, if, if we're only acting out, and I say only, you know, relatively, if we're only acting out once a month, we may not feel like that cycle is happening. But if we step back and look over five years or 10 years, we're like, man, I'm increasingly not living out of an authentic self. I'm not vulnerable. I'm not real. And I, I honestly think, Jim, that, that's why we see these horrific stories of leaders that write books and stand on stage and people are like, wow. And then something explodes out of their life. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Well, the truth is it's nothing new. It's nothing that just happened. It's probably years of this cycle happening where shame and secrecy keep me separated from people. And over time, it implodes to the point that it can no longer be hidden. And that's the enemy stealing and killing and destroying lives and marriages and ministries. And I just feel like why do we wait for that to happen? If it's a cycle and it leads to death, you know, in James chapter one says the same thing that, you know, that our thoughts give birth to temptation, that give birth to sin, and that when it's fully conceived gives birth to death. Yeah. Well, if the outcome of this pattern is death, then I need to go a different direction <laughs> and not wait yeah. for the death to come. Well, you know, you, we, I was thinking as you were speaking, I thought, well, it's not really a shame cycle. It's more like a shame 
tornado and when yeah, it hits the ground there's like a downward discussion. spiral yeah no that's really good man well what i want to do in the next like 15 20 minutes i want to dive into these these pillars that i mean i'm here in oregon you're just an hour north of me and uh your ministry has really impacted a lot of men in my community and so they always talk about this thing called the seven pillars it's like this mystery that nobody will tell me about so and you shared that you're going to unlock the mystery so let's walk through those seven pillars uh you said earlier uh, uh, offline that they were tasks of freedom or or pillars but they're not se- they're non-sequential there's seven of them, but they're non-sequential, and I'm really curious to find out what those are because I think, and I, and let me just say this: anybody listening, don't think this is going to be the end all. This podcast, you need to plug into a Pure Desire group and get going, and we'll offer a link on at the end of this podcast to help you. But can we walk through these seven pillars, and you can throw them out in any order you want? Because I know they're not sequential. Yeah. But let's walk yeah. through these. You can order them how you you like to order them. Whatever you want to do, let's unpack. Yeah. What would you say the first one is? Yeah, it's good to unpack these because it is. You know, the, the name of our main workbook for men is Seven Pillars of Freedom, and I just want to echo what you just said. I, we can give the knowledge about these, but they really need to be lived out in a community with other men that are also working on them, because that's where the power of Christ really begins to transform us. Um, and that's a workbook and a, a, a group that takes men about eight to 10 months to get through spending, you know, spending roughly a month per pillar unpacking themes and concepts around it. So the first pillar is all about facing reality or breaking through denial. It's learning to be a man who speaks the truth to other men and unpacks my whole story. And, and when I say that, I don't just mean we say, well, yeah, I struggle with pornography once in a while. Uh, how many of us have said something like that, but we know that underneath that statement, there is a whole host of other stuff that we've never really told anybody. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've heard people say about this kind of struggle, that the, the devil's in the details. And there is a sense in which our deepest shame or in some of the details of, well, yeah, I look at pornography, but what I've never told people is that the kind of pornography makes me really shameful or that I looked at pornography while my kids were asleep in the same room or while, you know, there's all these parts of our story going back into where it first started that maybe have all these messages of shame. And so breaking through denial is actually coming to the place of like, I'm going to get it all out there. I'm going to uncover all the stones and it might be messy and ugly, but I'm actually in a group where that's expected of me. And when I do that, people don't go, Oh my gosh, you did what? It's like, wow. Welcome to the club. Me yeah. too. You know, yeah. maybe our stories aren't the same, but we have this sense of like, yeah, we've all done some really messy, ugly, dumb stuff. But if we could get it out, if we could face the truth, then we can start to deal with it and get over this whole pattern of feeling like I'm I'm trying to put my best foot forward and not talk about the real stuff that I, I've done. Well, I love so what you're facing saying. the yeah. truth is number well, one. And I love what you're saying because the guy who's going, man, I only, I mean, I'm only, I'm only looking at porn and masturbating four times a year. That guy's doing it four times by lunch. I don't have a problem. And you're saying. Hey man, let's go back to those three questions we asked earlier and let's address reality. So that's really powerful. So I'm glad you started there. What's number two, pillar two? So number two is understanding the nature of our sexual addiction or brokenness. So it's the things we've been talking about, understanding that it's not just I do bad things because I'm a sinner or because all men struggle with this, uh, but it's, it's recognizing that this has become an answer to my problems. 
that pornography is a symptom of much deeper struggles. And that the reason I've gotten stuck, you know, if, if all it was, Jim, was just, you know, we're guys that have eyes and, and women are beautiful. If that's all it was, change would be a much simpler process. But based on how many people simply get stuck in this, we'd say there's more going on. And that's what Pillar 2 is all about, is understanding how does trauma and wounds from my past create lies and deception in my thinking, and then pornography becomes the answer to my problem. So like I said, for me, where I struggled with feeling not good enough, worthless, you know, and not valued, pornography was the answer to those questions. So I had to understand that process and, and what was all connected before I could work on changing it. I like that. So that's where the wounds from the past comes in, understanding the nature of our... Man, there's so much well, there. I would say that's where the wounds are introduced, yeah. but that's going to be... That's basically a part of all seven pillars, there's if I'm honest. There's so much there. I'm like, I can't even ask the next question. There's so much there. Let's just go to pillar three. I mean, this is why you spend a month on this stuff, right? Well, yep. A month per pillar. Yeah. Pillar three. Pillar three is about surrendering to the process. Um, it's learning to come more to the end of myself that I can't fix this alone. And that's not a bad thing. And that I need to put myself into true accountability, um, which by the way, I would make a quick mention here that most men's groups do accountability backwards because we say, Hey, would you keep me accountable this week? I give you permission to check in anytime and ask how I'm doing. And that sounds noble, but actually just made them responsible for my change. True accountability is when I say, I am going to call you this week, and I'm going to call you Tuesday at five o'clock, and I'm going to tell you how I am doing on this specific area that I'm working on. So maybe it's this week. I'm not going to go on social media anymore all week. And on Tuesday at five o'clock, I'm going to call you and tell you how I'm doing. That That's part of the process. That's where we learn about some of the tools. We learn about the faster scale, some of the things that we do to be accountable and, and unless we're humbled to that process of saying, I'm going to let others lead me to a place I've not been, we're going to get stuck here. So it's a lot about humility, forgiveness, learning how to love ourselves uh, in a way that is godly and biblical. Uh, so all that's involved in surrendering to the process. Well, you spent in your book a lot of time on confession, like 30 or 40, 30, 40 pages. You said on one, at one point, confession is nothing. Confession is everything. You talk about the both and of our confession. And so there is a tension there, right? And you just explained it. So if you want to read more about confession, you can pick up his book. And uh, on pages 75, all the way up to about 100, you really dive headlong into that. But we'll just stop at pillar three. That pillar three, we need to surrender to the process. And confession is a massive part of it. And being accountable in a way that you are making yourself accountable and you are owning the responsibility of accountability, not deferring that to your uh, accountability partner or sponsor or whatever you want to call it. Is that, mm -hmm. is that about right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Un understanding the tools. Okay. All right. Is there any other tools I missed there? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. So pillar number four, yeah. So pillar four is is limiting damage from our behavior. And it's really where we start to unpack how other people and relationships are damaged um, and how my own sense of well-being, my career, my future are being damaged and really starting to develop a game plan to not hurt people anymore, to not hurt myself. And even if those people don't currently know I'm struggling, it's like I've I've got to start unpacking 
that this is because, you know, one of the, the biggest lies we hear, we tell ourselves is, well, it's not hurting anybody else, man. And that is, that is such a lie because a vast majority of spouses, if they know the details of what we're doing, it's very hurtful. Um, it's making us less emotionally available to our own children. That's hurting them. It's occupying time and energy and brain space that we could be using to serve God and help other people. That's hurting them. It's if we're even looking at an image online and we say, well, I know, I've never paid for anything or I, I don't go to that gross stuff. Well, if, if you've ever clicked on an image, that click is being registered and it's counting towards some company that's making money off of sexual exploitation. We are contributing to an industry that sex traffics people, that abuses people, that objectifies and hurts women. And as, as we understand some of that, then we learn, okay, I, I've got to take this seriously, not just for me, but for people around me and learning to have a, a damage control plan, um, having a, a plan of recovery after relapse is part of that. Like, okay, if I, if I do relapse again, because just because we start the process doesn't mean now we're relapse free. Sometimes a relapse is part of the growth, but we define if I do relapse, here are steps I'm willingly going to take to learn from that relapse and in a sense to make restitution for the ways that my behavior hurts other people, because that begins to communicate to our brain, there is a cost to this. And if I'm willing to pay it, then I, I learn from it and grow. So that's part of the damage control plan. There's a there's a lot there. And I saw you smiling earlier, and I know that smile is like, man, we're just scratching the surface. I, I understand that. So it, really interesting to me. So I have guys ask this question, and we've had all the time, so at what point is this the step where a guy goes to his wife and says, because I know step three deals with confession, but is step four where a guy would go to his wife and go, hey, here's what's going on? Or would you say, don't talk to your wife about it? What's your thought? Because yeah. you spent a well, lot of years talking to your wife about it. Yeah, the reality is, of uh, I would say a majority of men, this has already come up in their marriage somehow. Because they're, they and know the they're reality the, yeah. is she probably doesn't know the whole story. Yeah. So if, if she knows nothing, um, that's... That's a unique situation. But what I would say is, no, that's actually a part of the, the seventh pillar, because by then you're going to have really understood how to give a full uh, reporting of your behavior and not blame others, not deflect, not um, blame shift away from what you've done. So pillar seven really does guide someone through a process of how do I do a full disclosure with my spouse that really is everything and not just what typically happens, you know, when men go to conferences and they hear like, so you need to go home, you need to tell your wife in 24 hours, everything you've done. I mean, if they do that, it's actually more of kind of an emotional vomiting, like, oh, here's everything. Blah. And and if you think about that imagery, it's not super pleasant, but what happens afterwards? If you vomit, you feel, man, I feel so much better. But she's the right, one you vomited everyone, on. Everyone that has to deal with the vomit feels pretty horrible. Yeah, they're cleaning up on their shirts. And and the reality is when you do that, you're not really doing everything. You haven't said everything. There's more to come. There's more later. It's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about this. And, oh, yeah, we never talked about that. So that's what Seven Pillars is equipping you to do is make sure that when you share, it's accurate, it's fact-based, and it's complete. So that when your spouse says, is that all, you can say, as, you know, as God is my witness and these men have been in my group, that is everything. And there is nothing more. And we've even, you know, when couples are in real conflict, we've even gone to the step that they'll do a lie detector test because not because we're trying to, you know, nail it to the guy, like, are you telling the truth or not? What we're trying to do is provide confidence to the spouse that you really know everything. 
Because no matter how deep the, the hole goes, if the spouse knows we've reached the bottom, now we can start to rebuild. When couples really struggle is when one of the spouse is not only hurting, but they're still wondering, what else don't I know? How deep does this go? Then they never have the security to start rebuilding. So I really encourage that to guys, even if you feel like, man, I've dug myself a horribly deep hole. If you would at least get there with your spouse and be like, we're, we're, we now know everything, then you can start working towards rebuilding. The lie detector. Again, that's, that's pillar seven, so I, not we pillar had, four. We had a guy on our podcast years ago, that uh, Doug Weiss, and he does a lie detector. And I had a guy last week say, hey, I passed my lie detector test. And I thought, man, you must be using his material, but it must have been pure desire. Yeah, there, he, he there's never said different what programs he that we we'll use. And I would say, like, you wouldn't just do that on your own. We would do that as part of a pure desire counseling process. Okay. Um, because typically, like, if you do a lie detector test, they can't give you the results. They have to send the results to a professional counselor. And that's where Pure Desire oh, or Dr. Doug Weiss or others oh, okay. could be a part of that process with you. Okay. And that's why I say it's when marriages are really in crisis, they're typically in counseling. And that's when a lie detector becomes super valuable. Yeah, I just, that's the second time I'd heard of that. So what's pillar five? Uh, so pillar five is establishing sobriety. And this is where you're going to go deep into what we call your arousal template. You're going to understand what are all the triggers in my life and where are they coming from and how are they linked to my trauma and what kind of game plan do I need to build around guardrails, healthy habits, to have a real plan of action that is establishing changed behavior, not just for the short run, but for the long haul. And so key tool there after the arousal template, you learn about the three circles, which is middle circle, what's my relapse, inner circle or the middle circle, what are my guardrails? And the outer circle, what are my healthy habits that keep me in freedom? And that's a very impo important tool that guys develop in Pillar 5. The, gosh, when, as you're explaining this to me in three or four sentences, I'm thinking, man, this is easily a month on each pillar. Because I can yeah. see a week here, a week here. Like you laid out the four topics of each week, you know, the topic for each of four weeks. So uh, that's good. How about Pillar 6? I'm, so I'm going six, through these. I want to get through these before because I know our time is limited, and this is yeah, really, really important stuff. We can hit them quick. Pillar six is about the battle of the mind, and it's really where we come back to trauma and take a deeper dive, not just into the trauma, but a deeper dive into what are the lies that you've been listening to, and what does it look like to begin healing those with the help of Christ and his word and other people in your life who are starting to speak God's truth in a way that's making an impact. Because think about it this way, Jim, by the time you're at pillar six in a, with a group of other men, they've heard all your stuff, right? There's no more secrets. And when you begin to say in that group, one of the lies I listen to is that I'm worthless. And you have guys in a group that say, man, we're so proud of you. We're so glad you're here. When they say that, it's like, man, no, I, let's, look what's happening here. I have worth and value and I'm feeling it in this group in a way that I never have before. And so that's where uh, the transformation of the mind really begins, I think, to take place. And pillar seven is all about healing your marriage and developing a spiritual growth plan moving forward. So we get into like, what's your legacy? Um, how, do you, how do you talk with your wife? How do you talk with children at whatever age they're at? What's appropriate to share with younger kids? How to have the conversation with older kids? Um, and then beginning to turn the corner and look at how does this become part of my story? Because really, I think our healing hasn't become full circle until we begin to use our healing to help others. If our healing is only about us, we're still stuck in a form of selfishness. And so healing eventually has to be about impacting our children, helping other men, 
healing our marriage. That's really what pillar seven is all starting to orient say, what's the future look like? And that's why with some men, you know, pillar seven is then an invitation to go through again, both for themselves and to be a leader, to help other men go through the process. So kind of that future orientation is a big part of pillar seven. So this leads me to my last question. So I'm a guy listening. I'm going, man, okay. I'm a once a month guy, but I've been doing this for 20 years. I realize I need to find freedom in this area. I need to get out of this cycle, this cyclone. I need to get out of this thing. But I hear that pure desire is about groups and I'm just one dude. So how does a dude find a group? (laughs) Yeah. So a couple of options. Number one, we have a map on our website of all the groups around the United States. We have about a, we have about 1,100 churches that are currently wow. running a group, which sounds great until you you know you start to blow up the map and then you realize like, oh, there's one group in all of Nevada. Well, yeah. that's not great if I live in Nevada. Uh, and so for a second option, we host groups online. And if you go, there may not seem like there's very many. That's because our strategy is when we post a group, it fills. And once it fills, we take it off the website because we want you to be with those same seven people for your whole group to get to know them, to learn to trust them. And, and you could do that online. And the third option, honestly, is we could help you and a couple other guys start a group. I'll tell you this, a majority of groups are not started by pastors or staff members at churches. Most of our groups are started by motivated volunteers in their church, even while they're maybe in some of their own story. They're just saying, we got to do something. If we could have a group, I'll help facilitate it because really the, the material, that, like the seven pillars we've talked about, the material is the leader. So you don't have to be a leader. You just have to keep guys on track and facilitate the group. Yeah. And if you're willing to do that, you and three buddies could go through the material and form a really significant group connection. That's really cool, man. So what is your website so we can point guys over to it? Yeah, go to puredesire.org for everything, puredesire.org. And then you'll see there's a groups tab there or all over our website, it says join a group. And even if you're just trying to check it out, Click any of the join a group buttons, and that will take you to the whole group pages where you can find groups in churches, groups online, how to start a group, like just find the group page. It's it's everywhere. <laughs> well, I, I'm really excited uh, about this stuff, and I, I'm really excited to get a guy from Pure Desire on the podcast. We're only an hour uh, from you guys. God is yeah, using you guys in a mighty it. way. I just hear story upon story coming out of your ministry, and so I want to say thank you for your story. Thank you for uh, being obedient and doing what you're doing to help men. Uh, it is a massive problem, and I appreciate that you guys are a solution. So, guys, head on over to puredesire.org, grab, uh, get involved in one of their teams. And I'm assuming that the workbook, we don't want them to buy the workbook until they're on a team. Correct? I, I mean, you could definitely buy the workbook to start going through it and just get a sense of what it is. But it's, yeah, it's really going to be lived out in a group. I mean, if they just want a book to read, you've been reading from my book, they can find that at puredesire.org or on Amazon. Or I still say all the time, if you've not read Ted Roberts' original book, Pure Desire, a lot of what we've just talked about for the last hour are, are things that he first discussed in that book over 20 years ago. And you can get that on our website, on Amazon. Like You can find that book used for like $2 because it's been out there for 25 years. But I'll say I reread it again just last year and it's like, man, the stuff God gave Ted in this book, I think is as revolutionary for a lot of men and women in the church right now as it was 25 years ago. So if you've never read Pure Desire, I'd say if you're looking for a book, start there or start with mine. And hopefully that would give you the tools to then step into a group. 
Well, hey, Nick, I sure appreciate you coming on today. You uh, have the ability to articulate very well, and you were able to bring some high-level concepts down to earth. So, man, God bless you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Sweet. Man, our man laws have been mostly supplied by you. This one today was actually supplied by me. Man law number 20 says this, any knife that cannot shave the hair on your arms is just a letter opener. It isn't a knife. So you got to be careful, man. Are you carrying a knife in your pocket or are you carrying a letter opener? Keep that knife shaving sharp at all times. You never know when you're going to need it. The life rule is this, always keep your tools in perfect working order. Hey guys, make sure guys that you are following us on your podcast app. A lot of people just listen without following. Man, when you follow us, it moves us up in the ratings and it gives us a greater influence to reach men for Christ. Until next time, feel the wet sand on the arena floor. Hear the deafening roar of the crowd. Taste the sweetness of victory. Smell the stench of battle. Get in the game. Get dirty. Grind it out and be a man. What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.